our scripture reading is in Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 8. So Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, and it reads this way. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Naya, and thank you, Laura and Kristen and Mitch and Tammy. It's just fun to see the encouragement up here. That was, that was what VBS was like. I was only there one night, but it was really fun to see the kids learn from the adults, learn from each other, and really, like we always say, happens. Like, we learn from our kids. That's why, that's why y'all are here today in this service, always, is because we... We have so much to learn from each other. So that's a fun thing about VBS. I also want to say, last week was so fun, the cookout after the church. Those of you who were able to make it, it's just so fun to kind of play together. We need to do more of that. That's what the pool party is about next month. And so I do hope you mark that down. And mark, for that matter, mark VBS down, because we're going to do it again next year. And I know we just didn't get it on enough of, enough of your calendars. So we'll, we'll be doing it, doing it again next year. It's a fun time to be together as a church. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's fun to get to open God's Word together, but like we do uh, every, every week, let's pause now, take a minute, ask for God to help, help us in the hearing and the speaking of His Word. So let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning, for the ways that you, um, you've called us to this place, to one another. We are your people. This is a community that you have formed, and so God, and we know part of that is to encounter you through the hearing, the speaking of your word, and so I pray now as we, as I speak, I, I ask that the words I say would be from you and not from myself, where I say my own things, where those ideas quickly fall away, but where I do speak your word after you, God, I pray that your spirit would teach, convict, comfort, reveal, all that, all that you do in our transformation, I pray you do that even now here this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were with us earlier this year, we, uh, we, we were in a, started a series in the book of Acts entitled Sent. We were looking at the ways that God's church had formed. It was being sent out into the world. It's really a history of the early church after Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, and, and how a small Jewish sect of probably less than 100 people became the largest, most global worldview uh, on, on the planet that we know today, Christianity. And we left off uh, with, with the incredible story of, of the Apostle Paul and his, his life change, this unbelievable life change of a, of a man who persecuted the church, how, how, how Jesus encountered him on the road 
to Damascus, and he became one of the great evangelists, right? The great teachers. He has written most of the New Testament. There's a story of unbelievable life change. That was the last time I was up here, so in some ways it just feels like two months came and went, and now, now we're back in the book of Acts. And so we, we pause there to spend a couple months in Paul's earliest letter to the book or to the to the Galatian Christians, but we are back in Acts chapter 10 today, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. And this story is really pivotal for Luke. In fact, you might say it's one, it really is, in the history of God's church, one of the most, one of the most pivotal moments. And Luke, you know, as we, we're stepping back into a stream where he's focusing on conversion, where he's focusing on life change, the, the Ethiopian eunuch on Easter, we talked about how uh, how Philip opened his mouth and starting with the scriptures, he, he explained who Jesus is to, to the Ethiopian eunuch and he's saved, right? And he's baptized. And then we talked about Paul last week and we're keeping conversion. Luke is keeping conversion right in front and center in the narrative. So we will do the same. But there is a, a simple question that I want you to have kind of front of mind as, we, as you engage the story as we walk through it. And it's this, what is God up to? What is God doing in each scene of the story? What is he, where is he active? Because the book of Acts and other narrative portions of Scripture, there's a lot of characters that come and go, right? We'll meet Peter and Cornelius. They're major characters in this story. And they're major characters all over the Bible. But kids, you even know, if you spend time uh, in our children's ministry, you know that that there's a big God, there's, this whole thing is a big story, that God, God is moving forward, it's his plan of redemption, and he is always the major character in every story of this book. And it's not hard to see in this story, in this narrative. Two men, very different from each other, Peter and Cornelius, thrown together by the providence of God. And so I, I want all of us, as we engage the story, do so with the question, what is God doing? Where do I see God working? Okay, Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Let's dive in. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So we're we're introduced to an upstanding military man. His name's Cornelius. Uh, He lives in Caesarea, which was a, a Roman mostly Roman port city on the Mediterranean coast, and we're told he's a centurion. So he's over at least 100 men in the army, captain of the most powerful army on the planet. And Luke tells us right off the bat, one of the most important things about him is that he is a devout God-fearer, that really he and all his family are devoted to the to the God of the Jews, and he was earnest in prayer and generous to those in need. Now, it's actually really hard to find a more, like a more glowing recommendation of someone than this in the Bible. This is a big, this is high praise for a Gentile, for sure, because this guy is, is really, in some ways, a better Jew than a lot of Jews. Uh, that's kind of the picture, except he's, he's certainly not a Jew, not even close. He was not, he's not circumcised. He, he does not eat kosher. Probably never went to synagogue. But somehow, somewhere along his journey, he became attracted 
to the God of the Jewish faith. He's a seeker. He's a devout one at that. That's who Cornelius is. So one day he is in the middle of his probably normal routine, 3 p.m. prayer time, and we're told that he has a vision. He sees in this vision, clear as day, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he's absolutely terrified. I mean, it just startles him. Like, probably like most of us, when God actually shows up during our prayer time, uh, he's not ready for it. He's like, whoa, God, here you are. And he musters up the courage to engage, what is it, Lord? And the angel explains that his obedient worship of God has not gone unnoticed. God sees you, Cornelius, in your, in your devotion, in your generosity, and he wants to give you more. He wants to tell you something. Now, verse 5, he's, the angel says, Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. So there's, really, there's no explanation, at least not yet. He doesn't know why he's going. He won't get an explanation for a while. Just that God has noticed his life and has more to tell him. Tell him. So Cornelius does what he's told. He rounds up some trusted associates and he sends them off for this beachfront property in Joppa. So the scene closes on Caesarea and it opens about lunchtime the next day in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house, which we, we, you can go to. Uh, you, can, you can go visit this place and the men from Cornelius are almost there, uh, so it's sort of this meanwhile in Joppa, uh, and we, we shift the scene to Peter, who is on the roof for his midday prayers. It's a great view. This is where you would have gone to the roof if you wanted some quiet time, if you wanted to be undisturbed. There have been people in and out of the house all the time. There's animals roaming the street, uh, but, but he, he goes to the roof so that he can engage in his normal midday prayers verse 10, this is what we're told by Luke. He says, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. It's like the perfect recipe for a trance, right? There's, you've got this oceanfront view. Your lunch order is, is in, right? You close your eyes to pray, and here it is. Now, now you have, you're in this, in this tra- kind of su- like half-conscious state, and here's what God shows him as he's waiting on his lunch in prayer before God, Luke says, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. The heavens open up and something like a big sheet or like a tablecloth uh, is let down by its corners. And as it hits the ground, it, it spreads up like a, like a picnic blanket, but instead of sandwiches and potato salad and juice boxes, right? Instead of what you would have at your picnic, Peter sees all kinds of animals, right? Every kind of creature, four-footed animals, animals with scales, right? Creepy, crawly things, kids. Uh, all kinds of yucky animals and, and some that you would recognize, right? He sees everything in there, but most importantly, many of them would have been forbidden to him to get up, go, kill, and eat, So Peter, he gets a little nervous, maybe a little nauseous, when the voice in the vision says to him in verse 13, Peter, go, kill, eat. It's not just a daydream craving during a sort of a sleepy prayer time. There's 
there's something deeper going on here. Peter, he responds really aggressively like, nope, no way, God. Not a chance. That's unclean. And you know better than anyone, I don't eat that. I eat kosher. That's not kosher. And it's not like Peter's just saying, no thanks, God, I'm, you know, I'm vegan now. Like, his objection is, is more deeply seated. It's, it's theological. The Old Testament was very clear on this. There, there were just certain animals the Jews were not supposed to eat. And these, these food laws, among other things, were the thing for their people. It's what set them apart. It's what made them holy. I mean, it's literally what to be holy is, to be set apart, to be, to be kept clean. So these, these food laws, it's what define them as a people. And so this is a huge deal. It doesn't seem necessarily like it, like God is asking a lot from Peter here, maybe not to us, but it is. So just like that, we're told that the sheet is pulled back to heaven and Peter, he's back uh, he's back in, on the rooftop in Joppa again, and he's confused. We're told, Luke says, what, he doesn't know what this means. Verse 17, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men who were sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs, don't hesitate to go, I have sent them. So Peter, he hasn't even wrapped his mind around this kind of crazy vision, and then he learns that three men are here to take him to another place, God's orders, you have to go, don't hesitate, go at once. So one minute he's waiting for lunch by the sea. <laughs> and the next he's got a vision he can't understand and a last minute trip to a stranger's house. It's a real turn of events for Peter here in the story. But we're told that Peter invites them in as guests to stay the night, to stay at the house. It's too late to go, to start the trip now. Stay, we'll leave in the morning. And just to note here for now, this is it's important to note, that just doesn't happen. So like, Jews and Gentiles like this, they don't stay together overnight in a home like this. And this is it's not the most shocking thing that will happen in this story, but, but for Peter to extend hospitality to these Gentiles is a big deal. So they set out the next morning, and, and as I thought about it this week, I just had to wonder, like, what was that trip like? It's about 30 miles south of where they are, and that's not a 30-minute drive like it would be for us. Uh, but even if it were, that'd be a really interesting trip, right? Peter's just gotten this vision. He doesn't know what it means. God's asked him to do something he's not going to do. And now he's traveling with these people that he's not supposed to travel with. And he has no idea why he's going. Just that he's to go. What could the vision mean? What is this trip about? Who are these people? What do they want with me? God, what are you doing? What are you up to here? Peter has the same question in the middle of the story that we're asking ourselves. So they arrive in Caesarea, and they're met with a full house. I mean, the place is packed. Cornelius invites everyone, and they all show. It's a big day. And then Peter is greeted with this extreme reverence. We're told that before you can even get through the door, Cornelius falls at his feet 
in, in reverence. And Peter rejects him. He says, stand up. Listen, I'm just a man like you. I'm a, Ga- I'm a Galilean fisherman. Get up. But now everyone's staring at Peter. This is a, that's, a, that's a big way to walk into a room. And here's how he breaks the tension. Verse 28. He said to them, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. It's not a great start, necessarily. Uh, not untrue, but not, maybe not a great way to break the ice. Because again, Jew, for a Jew to risk being around unlawful food, to be in the midst of idol worship, it was just too much. Hardly ever would a Jew enter the house of a Gentile. But Peter, we see, he's beginning to get it. So, verse 29, But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Peter's connecting the dots. Right? Sometimes that's all we need is a long walk to sort some things out. He's starting to get it. This isn't about food in a sheet. Not really. Remember, that's what the, that's what the vision is about. His trance. It's about, it's about things that he's not supposed to eat. But now he gets it. He says, I'm not to call anyone, any person, impure or unclean. This is about people. People that God has welcomed to himself. Peter sees that God does not make this distinction now between Jew and Gentile as he once thought. But he still has no idea why he's there. Verse 29, so I I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask you, may I ask why you sent for me? It's that moment when people look around in the meeting like, so who called this meeting? Why are we here? Right, Peter doesn't really know why he's in this, in this Gentile's house. Cornelius doesn't really know why, why Peter's there. God's the one who called this meeting, after all. So, re, so Cornelius, we're told he recaps his side. The story tells about his vision. How God, how God told him to send for Peter. And then he concludes like this, verse 33. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. He says, we've come to hear from God through you, Peter. What a beautiful thing to say. This this military man in Caesarea, humbly before Peter, before this Jew, that, I mean, this is a big deal. To admit to Peter, that I need to hear from you. So verse 34, Peter restates sort of this light bulb moment that I imagine came into focus on this trip. He he restates it even more strongly. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. He's starting to understand no one is unclean. All people are welcomed. No one has a leg up when it comes to approaching God. The welcome is universal. There are no boundaries. There are no limits. And then he starts, he just launches into a sermon. He starts bearing witness about Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus that he walked with, that he learned from, that he saw anointed with power, at his baptism, who he saw heal, healed various diseases, raised people from the dead, battled demons throughout the region. 
all in line with what the prophets said would happen. And of course, he recounts how Jesus was killed on a Roman cross, but how he defeated death and broke bread with the very people who betrayed him and left him for dead. Because that's why, that's why he came. Verse 43, he concludes, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And before Peter could even finish the sermon, before he's done speaking, we're told that the Holy Spirit comes in, he came upon in power all the people who heard the message which was a couple months ago, but remember, that is how this whole thing starts. Pentecost, that's how this new community is formed. The Spirit comes in power, and people are speaking in tongues, and they're praising God, and now this is happening with a Gentile and his entire family. It would have been an incredible thing to experience God's presence in that place, in a living room. The Jewish believers that came with Peter, they couldn't believe their eyes and ears. And it turns out, as the word makes its way to Jerusalem and kind of all the other Jewish believers start to understand what's happening, they actually become pretty critical of Peter. They say, what, you went into his house? You ate with him? You stayed with him? So Peter recounts the whole thing. Chapter 11, up until 17, he recounts everything that happened, and here's their conclusion. Here's his conclusion, 17. If God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in the way? And they all come to the same conclusion. They praise God for this new work, this new thing that he was doing, because it was indeed that, a new thing. But in this moment, this small community of Jews who love Jesus becomes something very different. Something else. Later in the story, we, we find, we, we hear that the first church that's filled with Jews and Gentiles in Antioch, it's not called Jewish anymore. They're called Christians for the first time. That's where they're first called Christians. And so from that moment on, these Christians, one of them told another Gentile about Jesus and and they told someone, and they told someone, and they told someone, and someone told you, and now you, even if you aren't a believer, you ended up here. That's the line. You know, we could trace it that way. The story changes everything. Which brings us back to our, our guiding question. What is God doing here? What is he doing in this story? What is he up to? I, I trust that you saw him at work in the visions, there are angels, there are trances, there's a meeting that nobody knows was set up, and it turns out God did it. Right, he's busy getting Cornelius and Peter together in the same room. And we mentioned already that Luke is telling a powerful story of conversion, of change here. But who is this story really about? Who does God have his sights on? Who gets converted? That's a loaded word. Whose life is changed most significantly here in this text? There's a, there's a way to read this and think, you know, the point of this story is Cornelius. That's, that's how I've always read it. 
He has this miraculous experience. An angel goes out of his way to, to bring Peter to him so that his whole household can be saved. And then he receives the Spirit. And he's a, even though he's a good guy and he has a good job and he's well-respected, he has a good heart, he still needs, he still needs to know about Jesus. And so that's, so that's what happens. Jesus pursues him through Peter. And now we know that Gentiles, like most of us in this room, we can come to Jesus and receive the Spirit. That's, you know, that's the point of the story. That's why it's here. And you know, that's not wrong. But why do it like this? I mean, couldn't the angel have just told Cornelius about Jesus right there? I mean, surely the angel knows the gospel better than Peter. Or better yet, why didn't Jesus just come get him like he did in in the previous chapter? Why go to all the trouble to get Peter and Cornelius in the same room together with no idea why either one of them is there? Why do it like that? Why does Peter need to be here to see the Holy Spirit change Cornelius? Why? Here's why. God isn't just converting Cornelius and his family here. He wants to change Peter. And he wants to transform his church. Cornelius, he needs to hear the gospel that Jesus can forgive his sins. We should not miss that in this story. It will spend a little bit of time there. But Peter needs to hear the implications of the gospel. That there are no unclean people in God's eyes. Peter walks in that house. And remember the, the first thing he says? Basically, I really shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. Or better, People like you and people like me don't belong together. It's just not right. Peter's gut reaction is, I shouldn't be here. And it's like God is saying, oh, Peter, but you should. Because I'm here. Some of, some of you here today, you are Cornelius. You're good. You obey the law. You pay your taxes. You are upstanding, honorable, and maybe even devout. But you don't have Jesus. And I pray you respond to God's activity in your life like Cornelius does, with a kind of humility that says, I need help. Because remember, this is, that's a big deal that Cornelius responds this way. He says, yes, God, I will go send for that Jewish man to come and tell me more about you. It's a big deal. He knows his desperate need, and he takes the help. And we all desperately need Jesus. You and I, we don't have what we need within us. You can't forgive your own sin or redeem your own failure. You can't heal your own body. You can't mend your own soul. You can't overcome death or even achieve the good life. Not on your own. We're tempted to think we can. We can't. You and I, we all, we, we all need help. Don't miss God's welcome of Cornelius in this story. That is a lesson here. But many of us, friends, we are Peter. We love Jesus. We know the good news. We know that it's his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection on our behalf that gives us any hope of salvation at all. But there are things, friends, there are things 
He is, God is asking of us, and we are tempted to say, no way. Nope. I've never touched anything like that in my life, God. Not starting now. I won't go there. I won't talk to that person. They don't look like me. They don't act like me. They don't vote like me. They don't think like me. Surely there's another church that will reach them, God. There's another church out there for those people. And like Peter, we need God to smack us upside the head a little bit. To get in our face, to help us see clearly. And then we need the attitude that Peter has eventually. Right? He gets to this place of saying, I was wrong. Right? Cornelius, he responds to God's unexpected hospitality with a humility that says, I I need help. I know, I do. And Peter, too, he responds to God's activity. God exposes a deep-seated partiality in Peter's heart, and Peter responds in the doorway of Cornelius' house by saying, I was wrong. And we need to be honest about where we are, like Peter, with certain kinds of people. People that we see as unclean or outside or dirty or disqualified or too dangerous or just dispensable. Like Peter, we need some diagnostic work and we need repentance. I just imagine there's this moment on that journey when Peter got this, that sick feeling in his stomach. You know, when you know you're guilty, when you just see it. He started to see it. He started to feel it. He came face to face with his partiality, his prejudice, the the religious and racial pride that was deep. It started theologically, but it worked its way into the way that he saw an entire group of people. And God used Cornelius to drive it home, doesn't he? Again, standing in the doorway of a house he would never have entered himself. Peter admits he was wrong about an entire group of people. And my hope and prayer this week is that there is a Cornelius in our lives or in this room that God is sending your way, that he's sending my way, someone who can challenge your prejudice. Because, friends, we have partiality in our hearts. They may not be the same, exactly the same as Peter's, but we need to see it. We need someone who can uncover our preconceptions, our unchecked assumptions about people. Someone who can expose our racism, our nationalism, our disordered allegiances, our sexism, our our homophobia, our fear of the unknown other. We need someone that meddles a little bit, who interferes with the way that we see the world, or just someone who makes us ask meaningful, curious questions about ourselves and about others. But most importantly, we need someone who can remind us that God's spirit shows no partiality. Someone to show us that he is off limits to no one. There are no boundaries. There are no borders. There are no walls. Those have been broken down 
by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And like Peter and like me, there's probably somewhere in your heart where you need to admit, I'm wrong. I've, I've missed it. So I just want to spend a couple minutes as we close with a couple diagnostic questions. Maybe something will spark in your heart that God can fan into flame this week. First, how are you practicing hospitality? How are you extending welcome to others? This is a huge theme in this book. And actually, if you think about it, it's a huge theme in all of the Bible. And we, there's a lot that was left on the cutting room floor here. And, it's, and it'll, it'll come in the next coming, coming weeks. It's a rich theme. But most of us hear hospitality and we think of like a beautiful place setting with a, a three-course meal and our friends and family. Or we, you know, we have a Pinterest board with all those things that someday we hope will be in our home that makes it cozy and inviting. Or, or the, you know, there's a whole industry called the hospitality industry to make you comfortable when you travel, right? A clean room, a, f- a fresh towel, a complimentary breakfast. We've got a table back there that we call our hospitality table. Free donuts and coffee. That's what we think of as hospitality here. But biblical hospitality, and those are good things, but biblical hospitality is a little different. We, we often confuse hospitality with entertaining, which is really about sort of impressing others with some luxurious extras. Hospitality is way more desperate than that. It's more basic than that. It's about meeting people's basic needs in a way that is dignifying and honorable. And Jesus, he is the best at it. I mean, Jesus had no home to make cozy and inviting. He had no place to lay his head, and yet he extended welcome, always looking to invite the stranger, the disconnected, the dislocated, the marginalized, the cast aside, the smallest, the most vulnerable. He was always welcoming these to himself. Are you practicing that kind of hospitality? Again, we are going to ask that question as we continue in Acts because it's just a theme that's all over. But are you generously giving to those who are in need? Because Cornelius, I mean, he's really the model in this story for this, isn't he? I mean, just think about it. He's generous. He opens his home. He listens to the other. He receives God's welcome. And if we understand the welcome that God has shown us as strangers to him, as enemies of his, and then he opened the door wide open and extended hospitality, we will become the kinds of people who do the same. But I want to end here. We, need to, we also need to pick at our prejudices a little bit if we're going to practice hospitality like this. So a couple questions for reflections. First, who wouldn't make it through your door? Who isn't, who isn't welcomed in your life? And I'm meddling now. I get that. There's a list of objections that will flood in if you're not careful. I, I only know that because that happened for me. We rented out a guest room on Airbnb for a while, which is another story for another time. But I will tell you, that experience revealed my assumptions about people really quickly. Who I thought was dangerous or untrustworthy or risky or who I trusted really, in, really quickly, inherently, And I'll give you one guess who those people were. People that looked just like me. 
And again, you don't need a home to welcome people into your life, but we need to ask some hard questions about how we see others. Who is dirty or disqualified or dispensable to you? That clean, impure language, it's in the text. It makes us squirm. I didn't want to ask these questions, but here we are. Who is it that's dirty to you? Is that bound up with a skin color or a language or a a cultural custom? Who is it that's disqualified to you? Are there people that you can't imagine sharing a seat at Jesus' table? Are there mistakes or failures or, or types of lifestyle that in your mind just cannot be overcome? And then in my, for me, the hardest question to ask this week is who do you think is dispensable? And by that I mean, really, who do you think we could do without in the kingdom of God? Like who in your mind, in, for God, it's like, ah, I could take them or leave them. That's a hard question to reckon with. And yet these are the, these are the questions for all of us. This is, this is what Peter was faced with, this type of partiality in his heart. And I know these are, these are awful questions, but we need them as individuals and as a church, friends. If there's anything that we see in this story, it's that God, God is actually the one that is pushing us here. He is the one in charge of his mission. He's always at work. He will not allow his mission to be thwarted by any kind of boundary lines that we draw. He will not, he will not allow his gospel to be distorted by any kind of prejudices, he is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the margins, to the fringes, and he calls Peter out to redeem, to restore, to refine, and he's calling us out to do the same. That's the beauty of the gospel. God will use the people in our lives and those who we think could never speak into our experience to wake us up and call us to himself. And friends, I need that. I am so thankful for the people in this room who have done that for me. Who have made me come face to face with some of these questions around how I view people who do not look like me, who do not think like me. So here's, how, here's what I want to do just for the, as we close. We're going to pray together and ask for, God's, for God to, to kind of give us this gift of exposing our partiality and confess together and, and ask for the sight to see again through his eyes and with his heart the world around us, the people around us. So if you'd pray, pray with me. Father, we are your people and yet so often we, we are the obstacle to what you are doing in the world. We know there are places you are where we do not want to go, people you love that we do not want to love, things you do that we do not want to do. And we confess that even though we have no business being in your presence. We were so far from you, your own son had to die in our place, and yet we deceive ourselves into thinking we are more worthy of you than than others. Make this real to us. God, I ask in this moment of silence to show us the faces you have put in our lives, on our path, in our way, and and we have called common. We've called 
dirty. We've called unclean, unworthy. Father, who is it in our lives right now that you are sending to us to share your love with them? Father, reveal them to us now. God, I pray that we wouldn't forget these faces where we get in your way. I pray that you would move us where we hinder your gospel. Teach us where we hide your great love. Forgive us. And Lord, from this day onward, by the power of your spirit, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let us show love. Where there is injury, let us show pardon. Where there is is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. God, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. That we wouldn't seek to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it's in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born again to new life. And we ask for that kind of life again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.